Welcome, listeners, into another episode of In the Fog of Justice. The real Wolf Creek, Yvonne Malat, and the backpacker murders in the Australian outback. Between December 1989 and April 1992, seven young backpackers went missing while hitchhiking between Sydney and Melbourne in Australia. At the time, the cases caused plenty of fear amongst tourists in Australia, but were quickly forgotten when the murderer was caught. For the teenagers, it was a case of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. The bodies of the hitchhikers were all discovered in the Belanglo State Forest, southwest of Sydney and 80 miles west of the New South Wales city of Wollongong in Australia. Eventually, serial killer Ivan Milat was convicted of the murders on July 27, 1996. He was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences, but his minimum term before he could apply for parole was set at a surprisingly low 18 years by the judge. Milat served his time at the Maximum Security Goulburn Correctional Center, an Australian super-maximum security prison for men located in Goulburn, New South Wales. On October 27, 2019, at 4.07 a.m., the backpacker killer, Milat, died at the age of 74 as a result of esophageal cancer, still claiming he was innocent of his crimes. The actual events of the backpacker killings between 1989 and 1992 were fictionalized in Wolf Creek, a 2005 Australian horror film written, co-produced, and directed by Greg McLean and starring John Jarrett. The story revolves around three backpackers who find themselves taken captive and, after a brief escape, hunted down by Mick Taylor in the Australian outback. The film was ambiguously marketed as based on true events. The plot bore elements reminiscent of the Ivan Milat murders and the Peter Falconio disappearance caused by Bradley Murdoch in 2001. Taylor was featured in a light blue 1978 Ford F-100. A follow-up to the original film, Wolf Creek 2 was released in 2013, again co-written and directed by Greg McLean and starring John Jarrett reprising his role as Mick Taylor. The film follows a young German couple and a British tourist who fall victim to the kidnapping and torture of Mick Taylor. The British tourist is based on the man, Paul Onions, who suffered an attempted abduction in 1990, believed to be by Milat, but managed to escape. The movies were followed by a TV series, again starring John Jarrett, who portrayed Mick Taylor in the films. The first season of Wolf Creek consisted of six episodes and was released on 12 May 2016. It follows Eve, a 19-year-old American tourist who is targeted by the crazed serial killer Mick Taylor, but survives his attack and embarks on a mission of revenge. The show was renewed for a second season of six episodes in February 2017, released on December 15, 2017. The story centers around Taylor meeting a coach full of international tourists. Mick Taylor is returning in the film Wolf Creek 3, which is being filmed in Australia in 2023 and will be released in 2024. The premise is an American family on holiday in the Australian outback who caught the attention of serial killer Taylor. A.H. nightmare ensues as the couple's two children escape only to be hunted by Australia's most infamous murderer. The victims were Deborah Phyllis Everest, Australian, and James Harold Gibson, Australian, both 19, disappeared in December 1989. Simone Loretta Schmiedel, German, 20, disappeared in January 1991. Gabor Neugebauer, 
21, German, and Anya Habshid, 20, German, disappeared in January 1992. Caroline Jane Clark, 21, English, and Joanne Leslie Walters, 22, English, disappeared in April 1992. All the victims had stayed in Sydney backpacker hostels and had told relatives and friends of their plans before they left Sydney. They headed south along the Hume Highway, the 840 kilometers, 520 miles, main link road between Sydney and Melbourne. James Gibson and Deborah Everest. Australian teenagers James Gibson and Deborah Everest checked out of their hotel in Sydney's Surrey Hills in December 1989. They set out for their home city, Melbourne, planning to stop at a conservation festival in Albury on the New South Wales-Victoria border. The day after they left Sydney, a walker found Gibson's damaged camera on a roadside at Galston Gorge, north of Sydney. They took it home, but did not report it to the authorities for another month when there was publicity over the discovery of James's empty backpack. His name on the outside flap of the pack had been cut off, but the name inside was intact. Simone Simischmiedl. A German national, Simone Simischmiedl, left Sydney on 20th of January, 1991, planning to hitchhike to Melbourne to meet her mother, Erwin Schmidl, who was flying from Germany to join her for a camping holiday. She was last seen alive at a Sydney railway station, catching a train out of the city. When her mother arrived in Melbourne from Germany two days later, her daughter was not at the airport to meet her as planned. She stayed in Australia for six weeks, hoping Simone would show up, but Simi had disappeared off the face of the earth. Gabor Neugebauer and Anja Habschied. The German couple, Gabor Neugebauer and Anja Habschied, left the Backpackers Inn at Sydney's King's Cross on Boxing Day, 1991, to hitch south to Adelaide, then north to Darwin, from where they planned to fly home. Police remain mystified by reports that the couple were seen a few days after they left Sydney in a caravan park in Darwin, where they were said to have missed their flight to Indonesia. A discarded airline ticket was later found near their bodies when they were eventually found. Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. British women, Caroline Clark from Northumberland and Joanne Walters from South Wales arrived in Australia separately, but became friends and began to travel together. They wrote to their family in the UK, discussing plans to see the Northern Territory, Uluru and the Nullarbor Plain in the Western Australian desert. In April 1992, they left Sydney and planned to earn some money in Victoria picking fruit. They hitchhiked first to Bully Pass, on the Pacific Ocean coast south of Sydney, where they were last seen asking directions to the Hume Highway. From there, they were never seen alive again. On 19th September 1992, two runners taking part in an orienteering event discovered a decaying corpse in the Belanglo State Forest in New South Wales, Australia. The following day, police found a second body, and the bodies were soon confirmed to be of Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. They were left near a network of fire trails which crossed the forest, including such sites as Executioner's Drop and Miner's Despair. Joanne had been stabbed multiple times and wounds to her spine would have paralyzed her. Caroline had been shot several times in the head and the police believed she had been used as target practice. Despite a thorough search of the forest at the time, no further evidence or bodies were found by police. 
A year later, in October 1993, Bruce Pryor found a human skull and femur in a particularly remote section of the forest. Pryor had been visiting the Belanglo Forest every week for nine months, trying to locate further clues after the discovery of Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, as the authorities appeared disinterested. Two bodies were quickly located by police after a search of the area around the skull by forensic investigators. These were later identified as Deborah Everest and James Gibson. Gibson's skeleton showed stab wounds, and his upper spine had been severed, causing paralysis. Deborah Everest had been savagely beaten, with her skull being fractured in two places. Her jaw was broken, and there were knife marks on her forehead. Gibson's backpack and the camera had previously been discovered by the side of the road at Galston Gorge, in the northern Sydney suburbs over 120 kilometers, 75 Beninurus to the north. On November 1st, 1993, a skull was found in a clearing in the forest by police sergeant Jeff Trichter. The skull was later identified as that of Simone Schmiedel from Regensburg, Germany. The clothing found at the scene was not Simone's, but matched that of another missing backpacker, Anya Habschied. The bodies of Habschied and her boyfriend, Gaber Neugebauer, were found on November 3, 1993, in shallow graves 50 meters, 160 ft, apart. Anya had been decapitated, but despite an extensive search, her head was never found. Neugebauer had been shot in the head. Simone's skeleton showed stab wounds, including one which severed her spine. All the bodies had been deliberately posed face down with their hands behind their backs, covered by sticks and ferns. There were the remains of bushfires encircled by stones near the bodies, suggesting the killer had camped there, and shell casings of the same caliber were also identified at each site. Beer bottles and cigarette butts were also scattered around, as well as duct tape, ties used for hands and nooses to lead the victims. Police were puzzled and considered several factors. All the backpackers except Simi were traveling around Australia in pairs. Two of the pairs included men, and one was an ex-soldier. How did the killer manage to overpower them? Were there several killers at work? Were the victims drugged? Did the killer use a firearm to pacify the victims, together with alcohol and drugs? After developing a profile of the killer, the police narrowed the list of suspects to a short list of 230, and then subsequently to an even shorter list of 32, which, it turned out later, included the killer, Ivan Milot. On 13th November 1993, New South Wales police received a call from Paul Onions from Willenhall in the West Midlands, UK, who, aged 23, had left his engineering job in England to backpack around Australia three years earlier. On January 25, 1990, Paul took a train to the Hume Highway to try to get to Victoria to earn some money picking fruit. And whilst hiking along the road, he came across a roadside transport cafe. As he was leaving the car park, a moustached, smiling Australian walked over to him. Where are you heading to? Do you need a lift, mate? He asked. He told Paul his name was Bill, and he seemed a genuine and friendly man. Onion said, after we set off in his four-wheel drive, I talked about my family and plans in Australia, and he chatted about the sort of work he did. He was quite cagey about his job, and all he would tell me was that he spent a lot of time on the road. 
Bill stopped the 4x4 truck close to the entrance to Belanglo State Forest, got out, and told Onions he was looking for some music cassettes under the seat. Paul felt slightly suspicious, so he followed him out of the vehicle using the excuse that he needed to stretch his legs. After a couple of minutes, they both got back in the car, but seconds later, the man got out again and started rummaging under the seat. Bill pulled out a black revolver and pointed the gun straight at Onions, and then he reached under the seat again and pulled out a bag containing a rope. At that point, Paul undid his seatbelt, jumped out of the truck, and ran for his life under gunfire. Unfortunately for Paul, Bill managed to catch up with him and dragged him to the ground. Onions told 60 Minutes in 1996, When I seen the rope, that just scared me more than the gun. As soon as I seen the rope, I thought that's going to take a bit of time, and he's going to do whatever he wants. I just thought, this is it, run or die. Somehow, Onions managed to get up and make another run for it into the path of an oncoming car, driven by Joanne Barry, who was with her sister and five children, which fortunately stopped, and he jumped into the back seat. As they drove off, Paul remembered the gunman standing with a stupid grin on his face, which he could not get out of his head for years. Onions and Joanne Barry managed to get to Bowral Police Station, where they gave detailed information about the attacker's appearance, job, and the type of 4x4 he drove. Still, staff merely handed him $10 to return to the British High Commission in Sydney, and the report was filed in a drawer for years. But after reading newspaper reports about the remains of several partially buried bodies having been found in the nearby Belanglo State Forest, Onions called Australia in December 1993 from England to remind the police of the story of his assault by the mysterious Bill. Unfortunately, his call was not investigated for five long months. On 13th of April 1994, Detective Gordon found the note regarding Onion's call to the hotline five months earlier. Superintendent Clive Small immediately contacted Bowral Police for the original report, but it was missing from their files. Fortunately, Constable Janet Nicholson had taken a complete account in her notebook, which provided more details than the original statement. Based on these reports and other investigative work, police finally zeroed in on a man not called Bill, but Ivan Milat. He was of Croatian descent, as his father had emigrated to Australia, but he was very anti-foreigner with forthright views about immigrants. Ivan Robert Marco Milat was born on 27 December 1944 in Guildford, New South Wales, and was the fifth of 14 children. He was employed as a road worker, Police learned he had served prison time and, in 1971, had been charged with the abduction of two women and the rape of one of them. On Good Friday in April 1971, Ivan Milat picked up two young female hitchhikers near Liverpool train station. He pulled a knife, bound the girls and told them, I am going to kill you. You won't scream when I cut your throats, will you? He raped one of the girls who then managed to convince him to stop for cans of drink at a service area. With the help of men from inside a petrol station cafe, the girls managed to escape, but Mila made his escape by driving off at speed. He was later arrested, but facing both rape charges and two counts of armed robbery, he faked his death by leaving his shoes at the Gap, a renowned Sydney suicide spot, and headed out of the area. Later that year, 
The police discovered that Milat had fled to New Zealand. Still, he was rearrested in late 1974 when he returned to Australia after his mother was taken to hospital suffering from a heart attack. He managed to avoid the conviction of both the rape charges and also the armed robbery counts through a series of police procedural blunders. Police learned that both Ivan and his brother Richard Millar worked together on road gangs along the highway between Sydney and Melbourne, that he owned a property in the vicinity of Belanglo and had sold a Nissan Patrol four-wheel drive vehicle shortly after the discovery of the bodies of Clark and Walters. Acquaintances also told police about Milat's obsession with weapons. When the connection between the Belanglo murders and the Onions experience was made, Paul Onions flew to Australia to help with the investigation. On 5th of May, 1994, Onions positively identified Milat as the man who had picked him up, the mysterious Bill, and attempted to tie up and murder him. Milat met 16-year-old Karen Duck in 1983, who was pregnant by his cousin. They married in 1984 and had one daughter, Lenise Mila, who died at 57 in May 2022. Lenise was conceived during an 11-year affair her mother, Marilyn Milat Tempest, had with Milat, despite being in a relationship with his brother Boris. However, Duck left Milat in 1987 due to domestic violence, and they divorced in October 1989. At the later trial, she described Milat as gun-crazy, recalling him killing kangaroos on a visit to Belanglo State Forest. Ivan Robert Marco Milat was arrested on May 22, 1994, at his home at Cinnabar Street, Eagle Vale. Houses belonging to his brothers Richard, Alex, Boris, Walter, and Bill were also searched at the same time by over 300 police. The search of Ivan Milat's home revealed a cache of weapons, including parts of a 22 caliber rifle that matched the type used in the murders, plus clothing, camping equipment, and cameras belonging to several of the Belanglo forest victims. Milat appeared in court on robbery and weapon charges on May 23, 1994. On 30 May, following continued police investigations, Milat was also charged with the murders of the seven backpackers. In March 1996, the trial opened and lasted 15 weeks. His defense argued that, despite the evidence, there was no proof Milat was guilty and attempted to shift the blame to other members of his family, particularly Richard. But on 27 July 1996, a jury found Milat guilty of the murders. He was also convicted of the attempted murder, false imprisonment and robbery of Paul Onions. In 2012, Milat's great-nephew Matthew Milat and his friend Cohen Klein, both aged 19 at the time of their sentencing, were sentenced to 43 years and 32 years in prison, respectively, for murdering David Octor Loney on his 17th birthday with an axe at the Belanglo State Forest in 2010. Matthew Milat struck Octor Loney with the double-headed axe as Klein recorded the attack with a mobile phone. This was the forest where even Mila had killed and buried his victims. Detectives had visited Milat over the years and tried to extract confessions for his believed other murders, but he kept his darkest secrets to himself. Police believe that Milat may have been involved in many more murders than the seven for which he was convicted. In 2001, he was ordered to give evidence at an inquest into the disappearances of three other female backpackers but no case was brought against him due to lack of evidence. 
Similar investigations were launched in 2003 about the disappearance of two nurses, and again in 2005 relating to the disappearance of hitchhiker Annette Briffa, but no charges resulted. Many believe Milad had been helped in killing his seven victims, with one possible co-conspirator being his sister, Shirley Soiree, 1946-2003. Judge Justice David Hunt said after Milad's trial, he was convinced the killer could not have done his crimes alone, and a juror on the case made similar claims after the trial. Milot's lawyer pointed out that both Milot's brother and his sister shared a house with Milot at the time of the killings. One key piece of evidence implicating Milot's sister was some cigarette butts found near the body of Caroline Clark. Milot was not a smoker, but his sister was. Police interviewed her several times, but could not gather any firm evidence that she was directly involved that would stand up in a court of law. On 18th of July, 2005, John Marsden, Milat's former lawyer, made a deathbed statement in which he claimed that Milat had been assisted by his sister. In December, 2017, Milat unsuccessfully tried to appeal his convictions for the seventh time, and he remained in the Supermax prison in New South Wales until he died in 2019. His history of self-harm incidents believed to be part of escape plans meant that the prison authorities classified him as an extreme high risk, EHR, category inmate for most of his prison life. Whenever outside his cell, he was escorted in ankle cuffs at all times by two officers. Ivan Milat, known in his family as Mac, died in Long Bay Jail's hospital wing in New South Wales from terminal esophageal and stomach cancer at about 4 a.m. on Sunday, October 27, 2019. He was age 74 at the time of his death. In May 2019, he had initially been admitted to the hospital with fevers, but then Milot had been x-rayed and found to have a large amount of fluid in his heart sac, the pericardium. He had calcification of one of his coronary arteries and, apart from heart disease, was diagnosed with terminal cancer of the esophagus. On October 22, 2019, he had been discharged from Prince of Wales Hospital back to Long Bay with an end-of-life plan. Even after his cancer diagnosis, the Ness Dollar Serious Offenders Review Council, SORC, continued his EHR status and segregated him from other inmates at Long Bay Hospital. He didn't mind as Milot didn't like mixing with other inmates. The families of some of his victims hoped for a deathbed confession to bring some form of closure, but there was not to be one. Milat categorically denied being the backpacker murderer when asked again by his family in his dying days. He said he didn't need a priest because he had nothing to confess. To his dying days, Milat showed no remorse despite overwhelming evidence and several failed appeals. As soon as Milat was dead, police moved straight in and declared Long Bay Hospital's MS unit cell 032 a crime scene. He was lying up with his eyes and mouth open and wearing an adult nappy, a green t-shirt, a green sweatshirt, and a hospital tag. Police searched his body and found no signs of visible injury and did a sweep of his cell, seizing personal papers. Then, a body tag was attached to his corpse, which was placed in a body bag with a red ID label marked 1974-15 Mylat Ivan. From there, he was driven in a coroner's van from the correctional center under police guard to the Sydney morgue, where the body was x-rayed 
and then to the Forensic Medicine and Coroner's Court Complex at Lidcombe. At 9 a.m. on Wednesday, October 30, 2019, the autopsy on Ivan Milat's body began. By order of Deputy Coroner Derek Lee, there would be no customary internal examination during the autopsy, which usually involves the removal and weighing of organs. Ivan Milat had weighed 85 kilos in the years until he became ill, but dropped to 66 kilos by the time he died. His corpse showed no rigor mortis, exterior signs of injury, or decomposition, but was cachectic, meaning it was visibly depleted in fat and muscle mass due to disease. Death had been due to advanced esophageal cancer, which had metastasized or spread to his bones, liver and lymph glands. The little finger on his left hand was absent, the result of Milat sawing it off on Australia Day 2009 with a plastic serrated knife in his cell at Supermax in Goulburn. At the time, Goulburn hospital staff could not reattach the finger, and Milat's autopsy notes a healed scar at the base of the finger. On his skin, Milat had a mole on the left side of his head and inside his left wrist, a 7-centimeter scar on his upper left leg, a 5.5-centimeter scar on his right hip, and a scar on his inner elbow. A statement by Ivan's brother William said Ivan had injured his hand working for the Department of Main Roads in the late 1960s, and Milat had also broken his arm and collarbone in a motorbike accident, aged 13 to 14 in the late 1950s. While in prison in 2018, Ivan Milat had begun experiencing dysphagia, or difficulty in swallowing. Prison authorities said he loved his Tucker, to the extent that when he staged his hunger strike protests, they never lasted too long. In his prison cell, he enjoyed black coffee with lots of sugar, specially ordered chocolate biscuits, and used his personal sandwich maker. William Milat, a year younger than Ivan, was the brother of Ivan's 13 siblings who remained the closest to him. In his statement to police, he summarized Ivan's childhood as happy, saying he had left school after eighth grade and got his first job welding chicken cages for a Bill Ryan in Australia, near Liverpool. William said Ivan enjoyed camping, target shooting, motorbike riding and reading in his spare time. He had been financially responsible and his relationship with brother Boris Malat's wife, Marilyn, did not cause an issue with the rest of the family. Even Milat's remains were cremated, but no funeral ceremony was held. His brother and sister-in-law, Bill and Carolyn Mila, scattered the ashes at an undisclosed location in the Illawarra region south of Sydney. Police have always been convinced that Milat could have been involved in more murders than the seven for which he was convicted especially as serial killers generally start killing before they reach their 40s when he committed the backpacker murders. Milat's brother Richard once said that there would be heaps more bodies out there waiting to be discovered. Australian state and territory-wide investigations into the unsolved deaths and disappearances of 58 young people were started in 1993 by Task Force Air. By comparing Milat's known criminal and victim profile, along with his known modus operandi to cold cases. Task Force Commander Clive Small honed in on three unsolved murder victims with a higher probability of being Milot's victims. Milot was considered to be a potential suspect in several of these cases, especially as he tended to travel far and wide across Australia as he started working as a truck driver in the mid-1970s, 
transporting tires via Adelaide, Melbourne and Brisbane to Goulburn, Yass, Canberra and Perth. Although Milot worked in the area coinciding with the timing of many unsolved crimes, no case was brought against him due to a lack of evidence. Keren Roland. On February 26, 1971, 20-year-old Karen Rowland, pregnant at the time, and her sister were traveling in separate vehicles to a motel in Canberra, Australia's capital. However, Karen never arrived, and her abandoned car was later found with an empty petrol tank on Parks Way, which, back in 1971, was in rugged country in the undeveloped outskirts of the city. The next day at work in Liverpool, Mila allegedly boasted to his co-workers about having murdered someone and buried the body under bushland. Milat was 26 years old and worked at the Department of Main Roads, frequently driving between Liverpool and Canberra. On May 3, 1971, at the Air Disaster Memorial in the Fairburn Pine Plantation near Canberra, Karen's remains were discovered 15 meters off a footpath by an elderly woman out walking near the National Air Disaster Memorial when she came across a handbag in the forest. Following a trail of clothing four meters away, she found Karen's decomposing body. The spot where her remains were found was in the Fairburn Pine Plantation, about 10.5 miles, 17 Kimerumorun, from the location of her abandoned car. Karen's body was found face up, with her legs straight out and her arms encircling her head. Her clothing had been pulled down, indicating sexual assault, and a beer bottle was nearby on the ground. Her cause of death was not established at the time, but witnesses later said they had heard screams and seen a woman running on the night Karen vanished. It was believed that Karen's fractured hyoid bone indicates her death was by strangulation. A documentary about Milat's other victims, Buried Secrets, said a post-mortem had identified half of Karen's hyoid or neck bone missing, which might indicate she had been strangled. Milat is also believed to have driven a gold-colored Ford Fairmont, similar to one seen by eyewitnesses chasing a woman matching Roland's description in Canberra on the night of her disappearance. The murder was never solved. Peter Letcher, on November 13, 1987, 18-year-old Peter Letcher, an unemployed sawmiller, left the southwestern Sydney suburb of Busby to hitchhike back to his home in Bathurst. But he never arrived. He planned to propose to his 15-year-old girlfriend, who told him she was too young to get married. Peter was broke and somewhat of a drifter since losing his job two years earlier. Bushwalkers found his bones on a woodland track close to the Jenilin Caves tourist site on January 21, 1988. Letcher's body was found lying face down in a small ditch full of leaves and branches, similar to the bodies found years later in the Belanglo Forest. His badly decomposed remains were wearing jeans, football socks, and running shoes. Alongside the body were his shirt and jumper, riddled with bullet holes, and an empty whiskey bottle. He had been handcuffed, shot five times in the head with a 22 caliber gun, repeatedly stabbed in the back, and possibly sexually assaulted. According to Milat's estranged wife, in the days preceding Letcher's disappearance, Milat took her once to the Jenilin State Forest to see a dirt track and a pine plantation, since Milat was working in the area. Letcher's murder took place shortly after Milat's wife left him. Diana Pinacchio. 
On Friday, September 6, 1991, Diane Pinocchio, a 29-year-old mother of a 2.5-year-old boy called Jack, rang her husband Carmen from Queen Bayan's Kangaroo Club and told him she was going to the Lake George Hotel in nearby Bungandore, which her brother ran. When she arrived, she rang her husband to say she had arrived and would be home later. Friends last saw Diane leaving the hotel for home at 11 p.m., and she told a friend she planned to hitchhike back to Queen Bayan. She left the motel and walked toward the King's Highway. Carmen said if Diane had hitchhiked, it would have been for the first time. But if someone walked up and needed a hand, she wouldn't think twice. The following day, Carmen tried to ring Diane's brother, expecting her to stay at his place, and then rang the police. Diane was listed as missing, but Carmen knew she would never have left. Her son was her life, and mine too. It was out of character. I was out of my mind. On 13th of November, 1991, two employees of the Forestry Commission in the Talaganda State Forest, 40 kilometers south of Bungandore and southwest of Canberra, discovered a body wrapped in pine branches lying face down next to a fallen tree trunk 200 meters off a track. She was wearing only her underwear and trousers, and the way her clothes were arranged implied that she had been sexually assaulted. Crucially, her seventh thoracic vertebra had been stabbed around the middle of her back, which would have caused immediate paralysis and incapacitation, similar to Milot's other victim, Joanne Walter. A beer bottle and a can were at the scene. Diane's gold chain, earrings, and car keys were missing. Other cases linked to even Milat from the 1970s-1990s. On 30th December 1978, Leanne Goodall, 20, was left off by her brother at the Muswellbrook Railway Station. She traveled to Newcastle to meet her parents before leaving for Sydney. She was last seen at Newcastle's Star Hote at 3.30 p.m. and was reported missing in February 1979. Milat was a road worker in the area in late 1978 and early 1979 and was known to drink at the Star Hotel. Robin Hickey, 18, went missing four months after Leanne Goodall disappeared on April 7, 1979. She was last seen at 7.15 p.m. at a bus stop opposite her home on the Pacific Highway at Belmont North. Police closed their investigation quickly on the assumption she had voluntarily left to start a new life. A later witness claimed to have seen Milat at the Belmont Hotel the night before Robin disappeared. 14-year-old Amanda Robinson disappeared on April 21, 1979, while returning home to Swansea following a high school dance in Gateshead. She got off a bus and was last seen walking along Lake Road. Police started a thorough investigation, but Amanda's case was never solved. Amanda Zolis, 16, was last seen on October 12, 1979, when a neighbor walked her to a bus stop on Tudor Street in Hamilton at 6.30 p.m. She was heading to Newcastle's Christian Coffee Shop on Hunter Street. At 10.15 p.m., Amanda called her father from Hamilton South Newcastle, saying she needed clothing since she planned to visit Queensland. She was never heard from again. Annette Briffa, 18, was last seen in Asquith, a neighborhood in northern Sydney, on January 10, 1980. She was living on the central coast as well as in the neighborhood. She was last seen hitchhiking on the Pacific Highway between Mount Cola and Asquith in the direction of Hornsby. According to one eyewitness, she entered an orange Mazda car or a similar vehicle. 
Susan Eisenhood, 22, disappeared from the Mayfield neighborhood of Newcastle after being dropped off by her brother close to the Stag and Hunter Hotel before she hitchhiked to Terry. Her skeletal remains were found in 1986 in rainforest scrub at Possum Brush in the Kiwarik State Forest, south of Terry. Milot has been considered a possible suspect because investigators obtained RTA accommodation records that showed he was repairing sections of the Pacific Highway near Tari at the time of Susan's disappearance and was staying in a Tari hotel. On July 4, 1972, Anita Cunningham, 18, and Robin Hoynville Bartram, 19, both student nurses who shared an apartment, left Melbourne intending to hitchhike to Queensland. 80 kilometers west of Charters Towers, Hoynville Bartram's half-nude body was discovered beneath a bridge. She had been shot in the head with the same type of 22 caliber rifle that Milat used. Cunningham's remains were never discovered. Although authorities looked into Milat's actions around the time of the disappearances, they never were able to make an official connection. On October 5, 1973, Gabrielle Janke, 18, and Michelle Riley, 16, hitchhiked from Brisbane to the Gold Coast. Janke's corpse was discovered at the foot of a steep slope on the Pacific Highway, midway between the two locations, a week after they vanished. Ten days later, Riley's body was discovered in isolated bushland. Her dress had been pushed up and she was not wearing underwear. Over her body, branches had been placed. German, Lydia Knotts, 21, was last seen at a friend's address in Chapel Hill, Queensland, on 31st October 1976. She left a note saying she would return in about a week, but vanished. In 2021, criminal psychologist Tim Watson Monroe and forensic anthropologist Dr. Xanthe Mallet included Knotts as a possible victim of Milat in the television program Ivan Milat, Backpacker Murderer. On July 20, 1977, Narel Mary Cox, 21, disappeared on a visit to Noosa, Queensland to see a school friend. She is believed to have gone missing in the Brunswick Heads area of New South Wales, where Milat was known to work. Norell's sister called the Milat Task Force in 1994, but he was ultimately ruled out as a suspect due to conflicting dates in his work schedule. However, this conclusion has been criticized since Milat used to get people to sign in for him when he was absent from work. American Barbara Carol Brown, 22, was last seen in New South Wales on May 17, 1978. Barbara set off from the Beecroft home of the brother and wife of her Melbourne boyfriend, intending to hitchhike to Queensland and then on to Perth in Western Australia. She was never heard from again. In 2021, Brown was included as a possible victim of Milat in the program Ivan Milat, Backpacker Murderer. On August 25, 1978, Stephen Lapthorne, 20, and Michelle Pope, 18, were last seen in a car traveling from Steve's home in West Pimble to Michelle's home in Baravra. Lapthorne's lime green Bedford was never found. Although they have not ruled out death by accident, investigators believe they were killed and that their remains were buried in the Kuringai Chase National Park. Deputy State Coroner Carl Milovanovich conducted an inquiry into the couple's disappearance in August 2005 and certified both of their deaths. Although Milat was identified as the individual who was most likely to have killed the couple, the coroner handed down an open finding. 
On January 11, 1979, Alan Martin Fox, 22, and his girlfriend Annika Adrianson, 17, left Barovra Heights to hitchhike to Kempsey and Byron Bay. They were last seen on Byron Bay's Main Street in the late afternoon of January 12th. Police considered the disappearance suspicious, and Mila was mentioned as a potential suspect, since he could have been on the northern New South Wales coast at the time. On July 27, 1979, around 7.30 p.m., Tony Marie Cavanaugh, 15, and Kay Doherty, 16, were last seen at a bus stop heading to a disco in Wollongong. A letter from the pair dated August 1st, bearing a Darlinghurst postmark arrived a week later, saying they were in Sydney, but they were never seen or heard from again. Milat was investigated as a potential suspect during an inquest in 2013. Kim Sherry Tier, 17, disappeared in East Melbourne around September 1979 with her black and white border collie while she was attempting to travel to Adelaide. She had been traveling across the country and in her final letter to her mother, Kim said she was scared of hitchhiking and asked for her birth certificate to get her driver's license. Victorian homicide squad detectives believe that Kim may have met with foul play while trying to hitchhike. On February 1st, 1980, Elaine Johnson, 17, and Carrie Ann Joel, 18, were last seen in Cronulla. They are believed to have been hitchhiking to Wyong. Milat, who had been employed in the region they are thought to have been traveling to at the time of their disappearance, is the prime suspect. On June 12, 1980, Trainee nurses Deborah Balkan and Gillian Jameson, 20, were last seen talking with a man wearing a wide-brimmed cowboy hat in a Parramatta tavern. Later, Debbie contacted her flatmate to say they were taking a ride to a party in Wollongong. Milat, who had been employed in Western Sydney in 1980, is known to have been questioned about their disappearances and was mentioned as a person of interest in the women's wrongful death inquiry. Joanne Lacey and Leslie David Toshak, both 20, were reported as missing on April 20, 1981, after leaving Sydney to hitchhike to Byron Bay on a surfing trip in northern New South Wales. In 2012, a coroner ruled that both had died under suspicious circumstances. On March 10, 1991, Carmen Verheiden, 22, was last seen at 12.30 a.m. hitchhiking on the Hume Highway in Kasula, close to Liverpool. After leaving a party, she was seen sitting outside the Crossroads Hotel to return to her Westmead home. She has not been seen since. Some believe that Milat might have abducted and murdered Carmen because she disappeared from the exact location of the backpacker abductions. In November 1993, Task Force Air Detectives investigating Milat's crimes looked at the possibility that Verheden was one of his victims but were unable to find sufficient evidence. On November 23, 1992, Melanie Merrill Sutton, 14, and Chad Everett Sutton, 16, were last seen by their mother in Inala, Queensland, at 8.35 a.m. when they walked to school. They later discovered that they had intended to hitchhike to Perth to find their father. It is believed they passed via the Belanglo State Forest. They are still classified as missing. Thank you for tuning in to Fog of Justice. What are your thoughts on this episode?